Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history lurking underneath. I'm Jem Daduchu, and what we're talking about this time round is, I think the title will be just World War One because I'm going to be covering a lot of movies about World War One, which will lead us into a conversation about, you guessed it, World War One. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the films, first of all. The interesting thing is, if I say, think of a classic World War II movie, you might go for something gritty and realistic like Saving Private Ryan. Move fast and clear those murder holes. Stand out of your weapons. Keep those actions clear. I'll see you on the beach. You might go for a kind of sort of gritty, but also a bit of a classic and a bit of fun like The Great Escape. Stoffel! You cross a wire with us? What wire? This wire! The morning wire! Oh. It's absolutely forbidden to cross it, you know that. Yeah, but my baseball rolled over there. How am I going to get my baseball? You might go for Where Eagles Dare. There are loads of, loads and loads of films about World War II. Some of them are realistic depictions of what happened, and some of them are outright fantasies, like Guns of Navarone. Oh, I'm not anxious to kill her. I'm not anxious to kill anyone. See, I'm not a born soldier. I got trapped. You may find me facetious from time to time, but if I didn't make some rather bad jokes every now and then, I'd go out of my mind. Then again, if I say Vietnam, take your pick. You could talk about Apocalypse Now, Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, the list goes on and on. But when I say great movies about World War One, Yeah, that's the problem. That That's interesting to me, because what I find is that there are movies out there. Probably the most famous one is Lawrence of Arabia. This is my well. I have drunk from it. You are welcome. Although not everybody knows that that's actually about World War I. Because where are the trenches? Where's the mud? Well, it's showing actually the Eastern Front against the Ottoman Empire, which is something that doesn't really get talked about apart from Gallipoli. So yeah, they exist. I'm not saying there are no World War I movies. But as we came into the kind of centenary celebrations, commemorations of the war, which would have been from 2014 to 2018, there started to be interest in sort of resurrecting it as a, not just documentaries, but also as a setting for some movies as well. Now, to give you an idea, in 2017, we had 
another version, there have been multiple versions of this, of R.C. Sherriff's Journey's End. This is a classic text. If you're British, you probably had to read this in school at some point. I remember reading it. I remember being bored by it. I remember having an argument with my teacher about it because I thought it meant one thing and I was told that it it meant another. That's the thing about interpretations, and particularly in school, there's a right way of interpreting these things. It looks like your opinion is different from mine. I hope you know that your opinion is now illegal. But Sheriff himself did serve in World War One. It is an anti-war uh, play. That's what it was originally. And it's been made multiple times, but in 2017, we had another Paul Bettany's in it. There are lots of sort of great actors in it. Money's clearly put into it. But the problem I have with Journey's End is it's basically people sitting in a trench and bunker talking about how awful the war is. We won't last five minutes if the Germans attack. You'll just stay where you are for as long as you can. Which is true, but we'll come on to that view in a little bit, okay? Weirdly, same year, 2017, we have the first Wonder Woman movie, which could have been set anytime. Most logically, as most superhero movies are, set now. But no, it was set in World War One. Where I come from, I generals don't hide in their offices like cowards. That's enough. They fight alongside their soldiers. They die with that's, them on the battlefield. That's enough. Interestingly, it kind of starts with a sort of reference to the Eastern Front with the Ottoman Empire. But of course, you've got Germans running around all over the place with German airplanes and German spies and German chemicals and German, German, German. And what obviously people constantly keep pointing out is they weren't Nazis in World War One. OK, they, they might have been the enemy if you're on the Allied side, but things like Holocaust and just outright evilness, it's a much harder conversation to have in World War One. So, OK, fine. You got Wonder Woman and Journey's End both coming out in 2017. Guess which one was the bigger hit, by the way? Then in 2019, you got 1917, a lot of numbers there, and that's an amazing movie, sort of looks like it's done in two shots, sort of continuous film rolling about these two Tommies who have to send them, get a message over to a group who are about to attack a German position, and it's all a trap. You've got all the, the mud and the barbed wire and all that kind of stuff there. It's an amazing movie. Is there any news, Sarge? News or what? The big push. It was supposed to happen weeks ago. They told us we'd be home by Christmas. Yes, well, sorry to disrupt your crowded schedule, Blake, but the brass hats didn't fancy it in the snow. Quite rightly, Roger Deakins finally wins his first Oscar for Best Cinematography. If you don't know who Deakins is, pretty much every gorgeous movie you've ever seen, he was the cinematographer behind it. And quite rightly, for something as technically difficult as this film, you want to give him something for that. So yeah, so there we go. Then... Interestingly, in 2019, we see the filming of certain things, but we get, and, and this is insane, Jungle Cruise. Based on Disney's ride, like parts of the Caribbean, we get a rock vehicle called Jungle Cruise, but that doesn't come out until 2021 because of COVID and everything, and it goes straight, I think it goes straight to Disney+. Plus. I'm not quite sure. I think it gets released simultaneously on Disney+, Plus as it gets released in theatres. It wasn't the mega hit it was supposed to be. I've seen it. It's staggeringly lazy. Have you seen The Mummy? Have you seen the first parts of the Caribbean movie? Then you've pretty much seen this film too. Also, it's, once again, The Rock in the Jungle. He's a lot of movies about him in the jungle. Be it this one, Jumanji. The list is surprisingly long. I, I recommend you, you do a dive into that one. Also, the other thing this is kind of riffing off is The African Queen, 
which is a film from the 1950s, which is sort of set in Africa during World War One, And quite frankly, considering it's called Jungle Cruise, they really should have filmed some of it in a jungle. Okay, it's just, it's all CGI. Special effects are technically better than the African Queen, but the African Queen's better. The mummy's better. The Book of the Dead. Are you sure you want to be playing around with this thing? It's just a book. No harm ever came from reading a book. The first parts of the Caribbean movie is better. They even base it a little bit on a real conquistador who was searching around for like cities of gold. His name's Aguera. And there is this amazing Werner Herzog movie from the 1970s called Aguera Wrath of God, which is astonishing. Think of a Renaissance version of Apocalypse Now. That's what it is. And it's all filmed in a real jungle. He then went on to film another film in the jungle called Fitzcarraldo about moving a colossal steamship over a hill. And they did that for real in the middle of a jungle. That one's a remarkable film to watch. And also the stories around it are equally remarkable. But anyway, getting slightly off piste there. And then, of course, you also had The Kingsman, which I mentioned in the Rasputin episode. That was also filmed or was meant to be released in 2019. Didn't get released until the very end of 2021. So there's been a lot of World War One-iness out there recently it's it's sort of hot again in 2022 there will be released i believe it's a german language version of all quiet on the western front now eric mcmaria remarks book all quiet on the western front was a sensation when it came out in the 1920s written from the german point of view it was very quickly translated into english and was very quickly turned into not the first but one of the first talky dramas and it won a load of oscars and is pretty much unwatchable today because all the actors in it were brought in through the silent era, and so the acting is very stagey to the modern eye. It was remade into a miniseries with Ernest Borgnine in it. It was a, I can't remember whether it was a, a TV movie or whether it was an actual movie movie. I'm pretty sure it was a TV movie. Borgnine, I think, won an Emmy for it. So that's a better, more modern version. But this one, seems to be in black and white again. I'm not sure. I've just seen some photos from the production. Now, they might have just shot them in moody black and white. Maybe it's in color, but it looks potentially very, very good. And the fact it's in German, completely appropriate because it's about German soldiers in World War I. I much prefer All Quiet on the Western Front to Journey's End if you're going to be assessing World War I. Again, more, more on that a little bit later on. So it's, it's still out there. There's still stuff being made that is linked to this era. And it's a fascinating era in world history. World War I is a little bit like, I was going to say a little bit like World War II. Yes and no. I'm going to say that World War I changed the world more in certain terms of changing the status quo that's been around. Really, what World War II did was change the status quo since World War I. So it changed what the way the world had been around for like 25 years and is absolutely the foundation to our modern world that we live in today. But World War I was changing things that had been in play for not decades, but centuries. Some of them more than 500 years old. It's that important. So I'm going to say that World War I is quite often the runt of the litter when you know people make movies and talk far more about World War II. It just isn't given the same love, which means that my thesis is, and I've, I've held this for quite a long time, World War I is the most misunderstood moment in history. Now, I want to be clear on this. I'm not saying 
that there are less well-known moments in world history. There are tons of those, but this is one that people think they know a bit about. I heard that it started when a bloke called Archie Duke shot an ostrich because he was hungry. And actually, it's very, very different to, to what it really was like. You know, you've got things like, and look, I love Blackadder, but particularly the Blackadder series was always written as just a comedy, which they happened to set it in certain time frames so they could have different jokes, basically. It wasn't just a standard sitcom. It is, in essence, very much like a sitcom, like, let's say, Friends or Forty Towers or something like that, in the sense that it's a fixed camera. There's only actually a few sort of like stages that they're actually filming on. It's live in front of a studio audience, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, but it's just they get to dress up in pantaloons if we're talking about Blackadder the second or, you know, in World War One uniforms if we're talking about Blackadder the fourth. To start holding it accountable for historical accuracy is ridiculous. Well, I'm a poor gormless idiot, sir, and I've never been invalided back to Blighty. <laughs> yes, Morty, but you never said wobble. <laughs> ask me some simple questions. Right. What is your name? Wibble. But it started to be used as a way in to explain these things. And therefore, because it was reinforcing cliches of the time, it's kind of unhelpful because those cliches are being the incorrect assumptions about the war are still being repeated today. So it's one of these things that people go, oh yeah, I know what World War One was. It was people sitting in trenches. It was people dying from gas. It was people writing that poetry. It ended in a stalemate. Nobody was happy with the outcome of World War One. It was lions led by donkeys. The generals didn't want to create any kind of innovation. They were just happy to send their troops marching slowly towards enemy machine gun fire. Literally everything I've just said is wrong, and it's provably wrong, but it's something that still hangs around today. And I find that fascinating. And that's, that's what we're going to have a, a conversation about this time round. Let's pick one of the weirder ones on the list of movies that I just mentioned. Let's talk about Wonder Woman for a moment. Well, first of all, there's an American involved in it. So this has to be 1917, 1918 in terms of when this is all happening. And at one point they actually get into the trenches. This is no man's land, Diana. It means no man can cross it, all right? This battalion has been here for nearly a year and they, they barely gained an inch. All right, because on the other side, there are a bunch of Germans pointing machine guns at every square inch of this place. This is not something you can cross. It's not possible. So what? So we do nothing? No, we, do, we are doing something. We are. And then they go across the trenches into the German territory on this exciting adventure. I think one of the main reasons why they decided to pick World War I is because they could do a play on words. So in the West... What happened was, I'm sure you all know the basic story, assassination, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, Sarajevo, triggers these various alliances culminating in this war, where Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire are kind of in the middle, sort of semi-surrounded, which was Germany's always worst case scenario. They never wanted to be surrounded by enemies. But to the east, they have the Russian Empire, and to the west, they have France and Britain. And it is worth remembering, both France and Britain had colossal empires, but Britain was by far and away the largest in history. Germany had a few bits in Africa and a few odds and sods of islands in the Pacific. I mean, really nothing compared to even France, which was a junior partner overall to, to Britain, if you're going to talk about imperial pedigree. 
not in terms of the actual fighting on the on the Western Front, which was largely in France and Belgium. So that meant that yes, actually more French men served in World War One than British. More French died in World War One than British. And so yes, you can already see that there's a slight change to maybe what you think you know to what actually was happening. So anyway, so that's what's going on. The Germans, using the Schlieffen plan, start invading France. In essence, they're trying to repeat the Franco-Prussian War. This is something that is also again forgotten. In 1870 to 1871, Prussia, basically northern Germany and a bit of Poland, they invaded France. And it was meant to be like all the other wars that have been fought for the last 200 years in Europe, like the uh, War of Austrian Succession, War of Spanish Succession, the Seven Years' War. These were all kind of things where little bits of territory were nibbled off and given to way Silesia was given to you and Alsace was given to you and all this kind of stuff. However, turned out the Prussians were way better than the French. The French were still sort of, I guess, thinking a bit like the Napoleonic era and things had really moved on. The Germans, Russians, were largely thinking about modern technology. And so not only was it a lightning fast campaign, but also Paris, capital city of France, falls to the Prussians. And so because of this, it was so successful that it accidentally created modern day Germany in the sense that all these little kingdoms and duchies and things like that, like Bavaria and whatever, there's this loose confederation called the Holy Roman Empire for most of the Middle Ages and sort of Renaissance and early modern era. and Yes, there was like a Holy Roman Emperor, but in your own territory, like Lower Saxony or places like that, you were your own boss, really. It, it was a loose federation of states, even looser than what the United States of America is like. And so what the Franco-Prussian War did is actually solidify this political entity. And as I said, sort of as a side effect, suddenly created Germany and you get Bismarck and all this kind of stuff. Another thing that's worth remembering is at the end of the Franco-Prussian War, because France lost, France had to pay an indemnity. So basically, for all the, all the effort the Prussians had put in, they basically paid an amount, because you lost, in essence. So the interesting thing is, not a lot of land was given Alsace, this sort of territory, which we get Alsatian dogs from, by the way. <coughs> this territory between France and Germany, that was given to Germany. But like half of France wasn't. So they, in essence, it's almost like to give you the rest of France back and to give you a capital city back, you're going to have to give us a load of money. This was kind of standard. Things like that had been done for quite a long time. Sort of exchanging of lands, but also paying of these indemnities. Why do I mention that? Because it was the formula of the Franco-Prussian payout, which is what, um, it's all, plus inflation, so like, Somebody did some maths and went, well, if you pay that much for the Franco-Prussian War, this is how much Germany should work pay in terms of reparation at the end of World War I. It wasn't a number just plucked out of the thin air. It wasn't a kind of punishment that had never been seen before in Europe. And yet most people assume that the Versailles Treaty, it was innovative. And, you know, one of the things for the rise of Hitler was they suddenly had to pay all these repayment things, which, I mean, look, undeniably, it did cause all these kind of problems in Germany. It's just that nobody knew it was going to go wrong. That's bad history where we know what's going to happen next. Nobody knew that in 1919. But what they were doing is looking back in the past and how do you end a war? So they were doing it the normal way. And I'm hoping already this is a little bit different to what you have in your own mind. 
So going back to, we'll get to Wonder Woman eventually, but at the beginning of the war, Germany using a sort of similar plan that had been, Schlieffen himself was dead by 1914, but had been planning for years. How do you sort of take over France really quickly again? You had mass conscription in Germany. The trains were only better than they were in the 1870s. But the problem was basically once they got out of German territory, they very good at moving people around Germany. At that point, his plan was fundamentally flawed because ultimately you have all these people moved by modern technology, i.e. trains, and then suddenly they sort of hit the end of the line and we're back to tracks and carts and marching and cavalry. And we're back to something that would have looked familiar to in the era of Napoleon. Anyway, they start... They go for it. There are a number of, you know, they, they rip through Belgium and take almost all of Belgium. And then suddenly you get this weird resistance by the British where they had this small group of well-trained soldiers. Conscription hadn't happened yet, which were so good at using their Lee Enfield 303 rifles, which are bolt action rifles that the reports were that the Germans thought they were under machine gun fire. That's how fast the British were able to fire their rifles. We know the British didn't have any machine guns there. So there was something called the Miracle at Marne, where the Germans ended up feeling that they've hit the stout resistance. They don't go any further and they start bogging down. And when the Germans, some Germans who surrendered, when they said, OK, so how many divisions were behind you? And the answer was, no, we're, we're it. Really? You know, so if the Germans had pushed a bit harder, they would have broken through. But that's counterfactual. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And so after initial amazing gains, the Germans lock down. Because they have most of Belgium, vast majority of Belgium, 
and a little sliver of eastern France. They are currently sitting on enemy territory. So because of that, the Germans over the years, there was this kind of race to sort of dig in and entrench quite literally from the North Atlantic coast all the way to the borders of Switzerland. And so they dig in, they're on enemy territory. In essence, they've already won. They haven't lost anything yet. And so the Germans, because they're not planning on going anywhere, build better trench systems. They reinforce them with things like concrete and stuff like that. In 1917, they do a great job of showing you what a British trench system looked like. It's kind of temporary. It works, don't get me wrong. But the, the trenches have these sort of like slatted things in the slatted wood on the ground. So you can walk around without slipping in the mud. But those quite often got drenched in water. And you've got these sort of like little caves almost where people were living in. And then eventually these men who go over the top on their own, they creep over to the German side. And you can see these sort of like better firing platforms, you know, reinforced concrete bunkers, these things that look like underground bases. This is all accurate and shows you how the Germans were able to take the punishment from British and French artillery because they just went underground, stayed there, and their concrete bunkers were more than capable, with soil on top of it, more than capable of withstanding the damage that the artillery could do. Why didn't the Allies do this? Because they needed to capture the, the lost lands of France and Belgium. So by comparison, the French and British always had relatively poor trench systems compared to the Germans. So then we come to the land between the two areas of trench works referred to as no man's land. And I think it's that line alone which led to somebody going, oh, we should put Wonder Woman there. This is no man's land where she gets to say, I am no man because she's a woman. And she gets to march across as under heavy machine gun fire using her shield. She's taking all the fire. Let's go. Which makes you start thinking, well, why didn't like British and French soldiers use sort of like sh bulletproof shields? And the answer is they did try things like that. But the problem with with basically bulletproof equipment, whatever it may be, is it's so incredibly heavy. Plus, you're under fire, and if it's hit by things like machine gun fire, it's sort of like pushing you backwards. It's it's sort of like shaking in your hand. It's incredibly loud. It's it's one of these things where it sounds good. And look, let's face it, Wonder Woman is a goddess, so she can deal with these problems. But a normal human being, you're highly likely to end up slipping, falling over, in which case the guy behind you is just being riddled with bullets. So it's one of these things that sounds like a good idea. It doesn't actually work in real life. That's why it wasn't done eventually. And then she sort of like breaks through and starts a fight and, and, and off they go on their merry way. That's already a little thing. The second thing is, of course, well, these trenches are, are a symbol of the Western Front, and that is accurate. That is true. So why weren't there loads of trenches in the middle of the, let's say, Hundred Years' War or other wars? And the answer is, this starts the conversation about technology and how actually there was a lot of innovative technology going on in World War I. Now, to be clear, everything I'm mentioning was invented before World War I, with the exception of the tank, but it was the first mass use of these things. One of the things is barbed wire, invented in America, because if you look at farming in Britain, what you tend to have is a lot of dry stone walls, uh, basically chunks of limestone or whatever the local 
stone is very carefully chipped into a, a crude shape and then stacked up so it doesn't fall over but you also don't need any concrete or any sort of like mortar to sort of keep it all together that's brilliant in somewhere like cumbria when you've got a farm that is like a fifth of Utah, you cannot spend time building all these dry stone walls. So the invention of barbed wire was genius because all you need to do is stick down a post, let's say every 10 meters or something like that. And then you just roll this wire, make two or three threads. You just quickly roll it and you can just, it's cheaper. And this was one of the sales points. It's lighter than air and stronger steel. And, and that's all true. And and so, yeah, so barbed wire was originally invented for agricultural purposes to be used extensively in America to just sort of like tag off the sides of farms and to stop the cattle wandering too far away. Cattle are pretty dumb, but they're not dumb enough to sort of like be able to sort of like rub up against a sort of, in essence, thorny area and want to do that. So, yeah, it worked for everybody in the farming industry. To let you know, industrial military barbed wire is actually quite different. The barbs, if you look at agricultural, appear, let's say, every 50 centimetres, whereas you need it to be far more prickly in need to sort of like stop human beings. So, yeah, so the barbed wire of World War One was actually covered in these barbs, but the thing is, it could be thrown up very quickly and, and, and cheaply, like I just mentioned in terms of agriculture. And one of the great things it did was stop cavalry charges. Now, there were cavalry charges in World War One. On the Western Front, and obviously in places where there were, wasn't so much barbed wire like the, the Middle East, but there were still cavalry charges. But you can't really get horses very easily around barbed wire fences. And if you're sort of like, literally corralling, like moving these people, be it infantry or cavalry, you can kind of force them because of the barbed wire into a zone where you've basically got all your rifles and machine guns ready to go and you're creating a kill zone. So that was another thing that was going on there. It's sort of like the innovation of this sort of overlapping fire, defense in depth. These things had happened before, but the Maxim gun, here a Maxim was actually an American. He invented the first proper true machine gun. What is a machine gun as opposed to like a rifle or anything else? Basically, part of the explosion of the bullet going off is used as kinetic energy to drag the next bullet into the chamber. So all you have to do is fire once and you create this kind of chain reaction. So all you have to do is keep your finger on the trigger and it will just keep firing until it's run out of bullets, basically. This allegedly is where you get the phrase, the whole nine yards, because an awful lot of the belt-fed machine guns, the Maxim guns, which became known as Vickers guns because the design was sold to Vickers Munitions Company in Britain, and a Vickers heavy machine gun was basically a Maxim gun, and basically the length of the bullets, uh, you know, all the bullets was kind of tucked into this, or either they were metal or they were cloth, were kind of tucked into this long belt of ammunition, it was nine yards. So given the whole nine yards, allegedly there are multiple different arguments around this phrase is to say, look, we're going to just pour everything onto them. There were a number of instances like the first day of the Battle of the Somme in 1916, where there was so much carnage going on, the German machine gunners just stopped firing. You know, it's like the job's done. There's no point killing any more men, which shows you the humanity of this sort of thing. So you've got machine guns, you've got barbed wire, the trench works themselves. Why weren't they around 200 years earlier? Because you got canned food. 
There are literally descriptions in things like All Quiet on the Western Front of great pyramids of tinned goods that are being sent to the front because of trains, because of this preservative aspect. The reason why Napoleon didn't let his army just sit around in a certain place for like three months. If you do your ensieged situation, that's dangerous because disease is going to break out and all these other sorts of th problems as well. But the key one being, how do I feed them? And the answer is, well, thanks to preservatives of canning, we can now shift all this food to where the soldiers are. And they don't need to go anywhere. That's also an innovation. The very first attempt to use airplanes. Airplanes were invented at the beginning of the 1900s. And yet by 1914, we're starting to see armies using them extensively. But in 1912 was the very first time an airplane was used actually as a bomber. What was happening is at the time you have Italy invading Libya and Libya was being backed by the Ottoman Empire. And there's this one guy, this Italian pilot, decided, wrote it in his diary, that tomorrow I will fly over the enemy positions and drop hand grenades on them. So that's what's going on in 1912. And yet, 35 years later, we've got things like fire bombings going on in the Spanish Civil War. And then, let's say, hang on, I've got to do the mass here. Hang on. 30... <laughs> Thirty-three years later, you've got sorry. So tw yeah, twenty-five years later would be uh, things like Guernica in Spanish Civil War, and then thirty-five years or thirty-three years later, you have nuclear weapons being dispatched by airplanes. That's an incredible leap of technology. I'm not saying it's good, but that shows you that in World War One, you had spotter planes. You you had dogfights. This is the first time you actually had planes fighting other airplanes. And they were seen as being so vicious and fast that it was like dogs fighting, which is where you get the term dogfights from. All this is new. And yes, you get bombing, but you get purpose-built airplanes to drop bigger and bigger bombs. You had these heavy bombers, these Goethe bombers, where sometimes dozens of them were sent from German-held positions over places like London. And also they sent Zeppelins out to do bombing raids. I mean, this is about steampunk as it gets. It's now being called the first Blitz. Of course, that was not what it was called in World War I because the Blitz hadn't happened till World War II. But you've now got civilian populations, not in the middle of a siege, but now literally in another country, suddenly in harm's way. Over 100 people were killed in various bombing runs by Germans in London. Now, that's not a lot. And in the big scheme of what happened in the war, it's a drop in the ocean. But think how terrifying that is. For the first time ever, attack is coming in from the sky. You know, you can build walls to stop rampaging armies. You can't build a dome to protect London from German bombardment. This is a terrifying new innovation and showing again how all sides are trying to come up with these different ways to try and break that deadlock. Everyone recognized it was a deadlock on the Western Front. Where else can we go? What else can we do? That was why they started doing the attacks on Gallipoli. This is basically a peninsula very near the capital city of the Ottoman Empire, Constantinople, modern day Istanbul, and explains why when the Republic of Turkey was created, they moved the capital city away from that to this place that at the time was pretty small in the middle of Anatolia. So, you know, very hard to get to called Ankara, which is still the modern day capital city of Turkey. 
although Istanbul is much bigger and much better known. So with that in mind, they come up with the very good idea, led by Winston Churchill, First Lord of the Admiralty, to say, look, if we can't get through the Western Front, why don't we try and go round it? And why don't we try and knock out easily the weakest link in the Central Powers, the Ottoman Empire, which had been called the sick man of Europe for basically a hundred years. It had lurched from disaster to disaster. Sometimes it won minor battles. Sometimes it fought a country to a draw. But yeah, its glory days were long past. All of this made sense. The capital city was particularly vulnerable to some kind of amphibious attack. Britain had the largest navy in the world. Ottoman Empire was weak. All of this made sense, <laughs> except the execution was terrible. The army wasn't communicating properly with the navy. They decided to use rowing boats to go to the bottom of cliffs. <sighs> it's just terrible in places like Suvla Bay. And this is the place where you get this, again, this kind of myth about the Anzacs. That's the Australian and New Zealand sort of expeditionary force. And the thing is, there were more French and British soldiers fighting there than the Anzacs. We tend to think that this was largely an Anzac thing. It wasn't. The British and the French took most of the casualties and had most of the men there. The reason why it's remembered that is because this is the first major war that those two countries were involved in. This is where those countries felt that this started identifying themselves. If, if we are big and important enough to be fighting as an important colony of the British Empire, then we are starting to identify as Australian rather than as British settlers in Australia, for example. So I'm not denigrating in any way their sacrifice or bravery or supreme excellence in combat. All those things are true, but just don't think that this was sort of like just full of Australians and New Zealanders and, and Churchill was just sending off the, the colonists to, to be killed. No. And what's also interesting is while it was a complete disaster, and it was a complete disaster for many reasons, some were avoidable, some weren't. This is also the, the main general of the Ottoman forces was this man called Mustafa Kemal, who later became known as Ataturk, the founder of the Republic of Turkey. He was an extremely capable individual, both as a general and a political leader. So yeah, you were up against somebody who was actually turned out to be pretty good, which nobody could possibly have known at the time. With that in mind, just because it, it didn't work doesn't mean it, it was a bad idea, is my point, but it didn't work. And there were other various attempts to sort of capture areas of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire themselves tried to attack shortly before Gallipoli. You've got the Ottoman assault on the Suez Canal. Now, this would have worked. This was very carefully organized. This is very well provisioned. Basically, Ottoman forces went through the Middle East, through the Sinai Peninsula, the Sinai Desert, which is basically in Egypt, to the Suez Canal to try and attack it and cut off British reinforcements and, you know, sort of like half the empire from, from Britain. Really good plan. However, because of these new things called spotter planes, the forces were, were spotted. The British had enough time to throw in some forces to respond against them, and it didn't kind of go anywhere. However, in modern-day Iraq, at a place called Kut, K-U-T, there was an entire British expeditionary force that managed to get surrounded by Ottoman forces and basically had to surrender. It was one of the biggest defeats of the British in World War I. So the Ottoman Empire, even though it was the sick man, even though it ultimately lost, it actually, you know, it wasn't the clear-cut, decisive victory that anybody could have anticipated that they would have been as effective fighting it. Do also notice that I'm constantly using the word Ottoman because what happens today is everyone keeps calling them Turkish. Well, no, because, you know, if, if you've got places like Syria 
and Cyprus and Egypt and still chunks of Greece and other areas. Huge amounts of Kurds in the Ottoman army. So to just call them all Turks doesn't quite work. I am aware, and this is something that's in my book called The Sultans. I've, I've written a history of the Ottoman Empire from its very beginning, around about 1300, to its very end, which is in the 1920s. There are still people alive today that were born Ottoman subjects. That's the amazing thing. But yes, I'm well aware that you know there is sort of like this horrific loss of life in the Balkans. You know, some people call it genocide. Some people say you can't call it a genocide. I'm not going to get into that politi politics, but there is no doubt that at least a million Armenians died. Almost all of them civilian. Okay, terrible. However, there was a lot of loss of life on the Muslim side too. It's a complicated, very sensitive area. Really can't do it justice here. I'm not trying to. Basically, I'm not just trying to say, oh, the Ottomans—they were just uh, the victims. Nothing bad happened with them. They did plenty of bad themselves. Okay, but here's the thing. I started off by going, World War Two changed the status quo and put in the modern world. Agreed. But World War One did more. As I've just mentioned, the Ottoman Empire started in 1300 under this guy called Osman. It was very small in 1300, but just a hundred years later, it was a serious player both in the Middle East and in Europe. That way of life lasted till the end of World War One. As I've said, it had been limping along for more than a century as the sick man of Europe. There was no reason that it couldn't have continued to limp along for another hundred years or so. And yet, by 1922, we have the end of not only the Ottoman Empire, but these long list of Ottoman leaders, and they're all from the same family. This is what's called the Ottoman Empire, rather than just the, not the Middle Eastern Empire or something like that. So like the Tudors or the Plantagenets, the Ottomans, most of them, not all of them, were like father, son, father, son, father, son. There was never a female sultan for the record. That entire way of life it changed the language of Ottoman Turkish. Modern-day Turkish uses the Latin alphabet. The Ottoman Turkish used the Arabic alphabet. That's how big a deal the changes were to just Anatolia alone. So there were massive changes in the Middle East. As I said, the Ottoman Empire was carved up. You know, places like Iraq and Israel, Palestine and Syria, all these places which, you know, aren't exactly peace and love nowadays, one of the reasons that is because their boundaries were carved up by Europeans who didn't really understand the ethnic or religious mix of the Middle East. And yes, the rest, as they say, is history. But if you think about it, these people, parts of my family, had known the rules for centuries, for as long as anybody could remember, gone. Here's a new world. Here's a new country. Off you go. An amazing change. Austro-Hungary. Now, the actual Austro-Hungarian Empire only really lasted for about 50, 60 years, but it was the smouldering remains of an earlier, more ancient so Habsburg Empire that had been around again for centuries. You got the Kaisers, which were come from Prussia, as I said, northern Germany, the Kaisers that had been had been around for centuries. Because of World War One, leading to this huge mess and ultimately yet another revolution finally successful in Russia, you get the end of the Tsars. And as I mentioned in the Rasputin episode, the Tsars, literally the family that Tsar Nicholas II had come from, the Romanovs, had only just before the war celebrated 300 years of their dynasty ruling Russia. So at the start of World War I, you have a sultan, you have a Tsar of Russia, you have a Kaiser of Germany, you have an Emperor of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, 
All of those are gone by the mid-1920s. You know, 10 years after 1914, these huge ways of life, these huge complex social and political systems are swept away. That is massive. That, that changes so much of the world. And then you get the successful nations. You get, the, you get France and Britain, and they basically take over chunks of the Middle East, and they also take over the other bits of German imperial possession, like places like Eastern Africa. So is this a stalemate? No, because Germany lost. Yes, by the time the war was over, almost no German territory had actually been taken, which has led to this sort of myth started by the Nazis, but perpetuated by things like the anti-war movement of Vietnam. Going, ah, you know, it's always been terrible in, in, in the 20th century war. World War I, nothing was achieved. Well, yeah, the fall of the Kaiser was pretty important. That's a social structure that had been around for centuries. Britain managed to get even more colonies. Australia was even given colonies of itself. You now got colonies running colonies, for heaven's sake, in the Far East, in the Pacific region. And of course, as I just said, this indemnity that France had to pay at the end of the Franco-Prussian War, that was the repayment scheme for Germany, sort of multiplied by inflation and, and so on and so forth. So, yeah. It's, it's really interesting how all these things changed. Of course, you've got the tanks. I've heard some people complain about the tanks saying, well, you know, the tanks of World War I weren't very reliable and they could only go about four miles an hour. Well, considering they were there to cover the infantry, back to that idea of a big metal shield to protect the infantry, four miles an hour is about as fast as, as soldiers can go over the mud. Oh, and by the way, any footage you've seen of World War I where people are marching slowly towards the enemy lines, that's all staged. Nobody had those slow hand-cranked cameras actually sitting in the middle of a war zone. What actually happened, if you read the chronicles and the, the sort of historical records, is, funnily enough, those men weren't stupid. When they were told to go over the top, they kept low and they ran. Because that would be smart. But if you're on film, you don't want to fall over. You don't want to get your uniform all dirty. So I will walk slowly in that general direction which again is this kind of reinforcing of this myth. So I hope I've busted a few myths. Hope I've mentioned some stuff that you weren't quite familiar with about World War One, And it does show you that there are little chunks of reality in something like Wonder Woman or The King's Man, and obviously more, you know, more appropriately in things like 1917 and Journey's End as well. So thanks very much for listening and hopefully speak to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.